Welcome to March. This is Ozarks at Large for Monday, March 1st, 2022, and this is KUAF. You can take us anywhere you go with the KUAF app. I'm Kyle Kellums, and on our show today, a dream is nearing a goal in Fort Smith. So we started uh, fundraising, and believe it or not, uh, from about, uh, I believe it's a two, about 2018, it's been about two and a half years, 2019, I guess it was, uh, two and a half years, we've raised $7.5 million to build this center. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith gets us up to date on the Center for Creative Arts in Fort Smith. In just a few minutes, the next public preview of a University of Arkansas Honors College signature seminar focuses on climate change and human history. We'll have our own preview in about three and a half minutes. Filing deadline for most would-be candidates for federal or state office in Arkansas's 2022 elections here, taking place just minutes ago. Candidates in nonpartisan elections have until three this afternoon to file. Washington County Sheriff Tim Helder says he'll retire from his post at the end of 2022. He served in the elected position for 18 years. The sales tax report for Fort Smith continues to show growth. Talk Business and Politics reports the first sales tax revenue report for the city in 2022 picks up where the last report of 2021 left off. The January sales tax report shows the city's share of the 1%. Sebastian County sales tax was up more than 17% from January 2021 and the 1% tax for city streets up more than 16% from the same time last year. Governor Asa Hutchinson is directing the United States flag and the state flag of Arkansas to be lowered to half-staff for West Memphis firefighter Jason Lang and Sergeant Joshua Cottle with the Department of Corrections. Saturday, firefighter Lang was traveling to Pine Bluff to attend an EMT clinical training class. He stopped to provide assistance during a traffic incident on the side of the interstate. As he was responding to the accident, he was fatally struck by a passing 18-wheeler truck. Sergeant Cottle was a member of the Department of Corrections' canine tracking team. Yesterday, he was fatally wounded while assisting the Pulaski County Sheriff's Office with a manhunt. Flags will be lowered to half-staff until tomorrow for Fighter Fighter Lang and to Saturday for Sergeant Cottle. The Arkansas Department of Transportation has begun an extensive inspection of the Interstate 40 Bridge over the Mississippi River. It's the first official inspection since the emergency repairs on the bridge. Department spokesperson Dave Parker says this inspection will be a bit different than previous inspections. Usually, bridges receive a routine inspection every two years. Parker describes this as a hands-on inspection. And while the traffic is going to be uh, interrupted somewhat for the next uh, several days, couple of weeks, we, RDOT, are going to actually uh, get on the bridge and put our hands on and visual the area that was fractured and repaired last summer. The additional inspection is to help provide the public with confidence about using bridges. Parker says RDOT received 18 recommendations in a report issued after the fracture in the bridge was overlooked for several years. The department will begin having different individuals complete the inspection each year, Parker says, adding that the recommendations have been taken seriously. I mean, I know that these uh, inspections this week may cause a little bit of traffic delay, I don't think it's going to be a huge problem, but uh, people should understand that's why we're doing it, because we want to make sure that bridge is still in good shape, and and uh, it's very important to all of us. A full inspection of the main arch spans is scheduled for September. He also says additional ultrasonic testing of steel welds will be performed this summer. The Arkansas softball team 9-4 after splitting a doubleheader with Louisville yesterday in Fayetteville. The Razorbacks next host Missouri State Thursday evening at 5 as part of the Easton Razorback Rumble at Bogle Park. And both University of Arkansas Fort Smith basketball teams start their trips through the Lone Star Conference Tournament tonight. The 12-seeded women will be at Lubbock Christian, and the 8-seeded men host number 9-seed St. Edwards tonight at 7 on the UAFS campus. A win by either team places them into the quarterfinals. All Lone Star Conference games after tonight will be played in Frisco, Texas. And one programming note. KUAF and NPR will provide live coverage of President Biden's State of the Union speech and the Republican Party response tonight, beginning at 8. This is Ozarks at Large. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change this week is giving us a dire report about climate and the future. 
The report, which uses thousands of academic studies from around the world, warns failure to address climate change will lead to a future that it describes as universally dangerous and deeply unequal. Next fall, a University of Arkansas Honors College Signature Seminar Series will examine past interactions between societies and changing climate. Dr. Ben Vining, an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Arkansas, will lead the seminar, Climate Change, A Human History. He'll also deliver a public preview of the seminar Monday evening at 5.15. That will be done virtually. Last month, during a conversation on Zoom, Ben Vining told us he plans to use the seminar to examine some aspects of climate change that are not always present in our conversations about the subject. We're looking here at the human socio-behavioral aspects of climate change. Um, So again, our conversations are largely dominated by uh, what physical climate change will look like, what the mechanisms are, um, how that will lead to such things like increased extreme weather events or wildfires or other kinds of natural problems that create risk for people. But we usually don't really look at what the human side of that risk is. What are people doing that puts us in risky situations? What are the decisions that we make? How how are we making um, those issues worse or better with our behaviors? And so what we can gain here by looking at this is emphasizing that humans are part of the equation, not just in causing climate change now, but in the past, the decisions that we make are putting us in certain kinds of situations that, that um, create vulnerabilities or create opportunities to be resilient uh, with respect to climate changes. And the other thing here is, uh, you know, just the, the article using the word A, um, we have multiple potential lessons or histories that we could come away with by looking at the long-term interactions between people and climates. Um, So there is no single climate history. This is not the climate history of people. This is one way to look at this and how we have um, a very kind of complicated story. And I think that that helps us move away from some of the simplistic and reductionist and maybe even deterministic ideas that we have about how climate change will impact us in in the future. So that's the objective here to really look at how We have multiple um, cases and histories of interactions between climate dynamics and human behaviors and how those outcomes really vary and and what we can really gain uh, from looking at that. What's an example of a civilization or uh, perhaps an event that you'll be examining during the seminar? So we'll survey a number of different ones. Um, the, The classic examples that come up frequently in these discussions are the ancient or classic period Maya in uh, southern Mexico and in northern Central America from about AD 600 to 900. Another classic example are the societies that developed in the region where I work in South America of Peru. Uh, these include the Moche and the uh, Tiwanaku and Inca societies. Um, another one is the Indus Valley civilization, um, the Sumerian civilizations of um, uh, South Asia and the Middle East, respectively. You know, so there's a there's a whole slew of of different societies that we could look at that are kind of the uh, the headliners for climate archaeology or climate history, um, and they give us different perspectives. Each each case is unique and and really gives us different insight. One of the benefits I would imagine of seeing historical episodes is that you can get an idea of pre, during, and post. Uh, climate events, as opposed to contemporary, where we're still hopefully in pre. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, archaeologists talk about long-term histories, and and that's what we're really trying to look at here. Uh, And and so there's a big debate that maybe is going a a bit too far out into the weeds about how relevant archaeological or long-term human histories are for contemporary problems. We're concerned about issues that are happening on uh, the scale of a couple of weeks to a couple of months to a couple of years or, or maybe a couple of decades at most. Whereas archaeology is going to give you a perspective that's decades to millennia um, in its scale. The advantage of doing that, though, is that you can see these longer term trajectories and relationships, as well as seeing the finer, shorter term events. So work that my colleagues and I are doing right now in Peru 
um, we're looking at how societies responded to clusters of El Nino years. Um, so El Nino is a, is a climate phenomenon that um, inverts precipitation patterns around the world. Um, and that's short-lived. That's, these things happen for maybe three or four months uh, in the early part of, of the year, but they have effects that last for up to a year long, environmental effects. And if you start to look at sequences of these coming year after year in certain periods, you can see the, how those individual short-term things are adding up to longer-term changes and, and the ability to, for people to accommodate those and, and, and respond to those effectively and productively. So it takes uh, a short-term event and it moves it into the time frame of looking at what we would call a, a state change or a phase change, um, where it's no longer just an anomaly, but it starts to become a new normal. Uh, and so anybody who's lived through climate changes in the United States in the past few years or, or climate-induced um, environmental events um, can recognize that certain things are becoming more common, things like erratic weather patterns, things like extreme storms, um, uh, bomb cyclones in the wintertime, for example, wildfires in the western United States. You know, at a certain point, those individual events are no longer individual events, but they're changes in patterns. And, and that's what we're able to track with an archaeological perspective is how people start to accommodate that and how do they deal with that kind of disruption. I know it gets dangerous to try to, you know, connect past events to contemporary. And, and so I'll offer this question with a huge caveat, but are there things we can learn and apply in 2022 from hundreds or thousands of years ago? Yeah, that's also a legitimate question. Um, and, and this comes up frequently where people, you know, one, one school of thought will basically say, yeah, well, this is well and good, but we're dealing with a no analog situation. Nothing like this, like this has happened in the past. Um, my response to this is, well, let me just step back. The other school of thought takes kind of the Winston Churchill perspective where if you don't learn from your history, you're, you're doomed to repeat it. Um, I'm a little bit skeptical of that. Uh, my perspective is this. Most of the discussion that we have about climate is forward-looking and is based on projecting models, very good, very robust mathematical models. But by and large, those models are based on physical processes and they don't factor in a human element, right? So we have both humans affecting climate change, we have anthropogenic climate change, we also have humans as a wild card in responding to those climatic events. And we don't really have good information to understand how that plays out. The only real information that we have to improve those models or to see how those dynamics are going to be longer term is from a historical perspective, whether it's through archaeology or history or something else like this. Um, the other thing is here, we don't really know if we are, in fact, in a no analog situation until we try to figure that out, right? So we have to really look backwards and see if we have similar periods where abrupt climate changes have caused problems for people and how people have adapted to that. Um, it gives us tools by which we can interrogate the assumptions that we have. So a lot of the discussion about climate impacts on human societies comes from the, the, the policymaking communities who are concerned about security, um, geopolitical security, food security, economic security, things like that. Uh, and those don't necessarily have all the social behavioral information when they're, they're presenting those interpretations. Um, the other thing that we can think about here with uh, climate change is if in fact we are in a no analog situation, we can still track patterns of how people have responded to, to changes in rainfall, temperature, droughts. So where people have moved, what kinds of problems has that created, right? So it's not going to be a one-to-one -one match, but we will have parallels and similarities that we can use to better understand the bigger picture here of how this might unfold. Today, I can pick up my cell phone and get a 10-day forecast, you know, that at least gives me an idea. I think we tend to think that 
uh, past civilizations didn't have an understanding of the climate that we have now. Is there any way of knowing how much, if there was this sort of record of El Nino's happening, how much civilizations did understand about climate, maybe in a different way than we do now? Yeah, that I'm really happy that you asked that question, Kyle. That's that's one of the best questions I've heard in an interview in a long time. Um, you know, you get a lot of gold stars for that, uh, and that's that's a big problem because obviously with archaeology, we don't have that first person voice. More often than not, we don't have that first person voice to try and understand that. So, in the example that I, I gave you earlier about our research with El Nino on the coast of Peru. That's a big question that we're wrestling with right now. Um, you know, to what extent could people anticipate these events or these changes? Um, so if you've got a strategy in place, you have to be able to mobilize that strategy before things really get bad, right? Before you're in a problematic situation. Um, and, and that's a really difficult thing to understand. Uh, there's a subfield of anthropology that deals with what's called traditional ecological knowledge or local ecological knowledge uh, or uh, indigenous ecological knowledge. And it's basically just what you alluded to. It's, it's giving people credit um, in a non-Western, non-scientific epistemology to be able to observe their world and understand that there are patterns in it and, and be able to use those patterns to forecast or predict what might be going on there. And we see in all sorts of local-based, place-based, or traditional-based knowledge, um, suites of knowledge, that people have this. You know, it might not conform to Western scientific standards, right? But there are still ways of uh, looking at indicators in the environment around them and coming up with ideas about what to expect. Uh, the Old Farmer's Almanac is a classic example of that for the you know, rural communities in the United States. Um, and we can debate whether that's accurate or not. But the point is people have a system of observing, pooling, and um, reproducing knowledge in order to understand their environment. And so that's one thing that archeologists and anthropologists are really trying to do because oftentimes what that can help us do is think about low cost ways of understanding climate or environmental patterns for people who don't have their iPhones and their 10 day weather apps. Um, it's a way of improving other kinds of observational data sets. You know, it's, it's a way of really kind of broadening our knowledge base. Really. One of the issues that we're, we're looking at that we want to interrogate really closely is this idea um, uh, of climate changing and societal collapsing, um, societal collapse rather. Uh, this is a very popular model. Um, it's popularized most recently by Jared Diamond in, in one of his books. Um, it, that has been, um, uh, how do I want to say this? That has been scrutinized by anthropologists and archaeologists and, and largely rejected. Um, and it still sticks with us. It, it resonates with kind of our popular consciousness. Um, it's something that we talk about a lot. Um, through a Western lens of, of the downfall of civilizations. Uh, if we look really closely at a lot of these cultures and societies, what we see is not always collapse or disasters. Um, what we see are, are short-term environmental disasters, but then the ability to recover or to restructure, reorganize, and to transform and carry on, right? Um, so if we look at kind of the long-term arc of human history, we have a generally upward trend with some up and down from, from societies changing, basically. Uh, what we don't see is this kind of overall catastrophic collapse of any civilization. We could look at the Maya, we could look at Indus, we could look at even the Vikings. Um, you know, we, we don't see the complete total disappearance of a people ever. What we see is transformation of how they're doing things, how they're living, uh, where they're living. Um, and I think those are the lessons that we want to look at carefully uh, in, in this class. It doesn't suggest that climate isn't a factor and isn't a challenge for us. Uh, it just says that we need to be smarter about how we uh, understand the problem and how we come to look for solutions. 
Dr. Ben Vining is an assistant professor in the Department of Anthropology at the University of Arkansas. Next fall, he'll lead a University of Arkansas Honors Signature Seminar Series titled Climate Change, A Human History. We talked with him last month via Zoom. He'll deliver a virtual public preview of that seminar Monday evening at 5.15. We have a link at ozarksatlarns.com. That will begin your registration process to watch that lecture. KUAF is supported by Arcom Plus, taking products and services from vision to reality. Arcom Plus offers custom wedding packages, graduation announcements, note cards, and more. Printing NWA.com or 444-7711 for additional information. Support for KUAF comes from the Walmart Museum, offering shopping in the original Walton's Five and Dime on the Bentonville Square. WalmartMuseum.com for more information. The 2022 version of the Northwest Arkansas Community College Spring Arts and Cultural Festival will begin Monday. This year's productions are centered on the theme of interdependence. The events will be a mix of streaming and in-person and address everything from how climate change is affecting people in the Pacific, including the Marshall Islands, to animal welfare, to restaurant workers and the pandemic. Plus, ceramics, film, theater, and music. Using the theme interdependence, the festival will be a collaboration between the NWAC campus in Bentonville and Crystal Bridges Museum of American Art, the Bentonville Public Library, the NWAC Washington County Center in Springdale, and other partners. You can find an entire schedule of events by following links at nwac.org. The University of Arkansas Fort Smith this week is making a big push for wellness, self-care, and emotional well-being. Events include a mindfulness walk, an event called Burnout Boot Camp, and a Thursday afternoon session titled Holding Space for Self. More can be discovered about the week at the UAFS website. Kohler Mountain Bike Preserve in Bentonville is now offering annual memberships to benefit the Peel Compton Foundation. That's the nonprofit that operates the preserve. The $100 membership delivers a limited edition coal license plate, a $25 credit to use toward any Kohler program this year, discounts on Kohler apparel, and it's tax deductible. More details at peelcompton.org. And comedian Brian Regan is returning to Fayetteville. The star of the current Netflix special On the Rocks will be at Walton Art Center Saturday, June 12th. Tickets will go on sale Friday morning through the usual Walton Art Center ticket outlets. President Biden delivers his first State of the Union address today, but some who are counting on him to get things done are still waiting. The president made a promise for immediate action on gun violence during his campaign, and that didn't happen. I'm Ari Shapiro. Advocates take stock this afternoon on All Things Considered from NPR News. All Things Considered this afternoon from 3 until 6 on 91.3 KUAF. And you can listen to KUAF wherever you are by using the free KUAF app. This is Ozarks at Large. KUAF and NPR will tonight provide live coverage of President Biden's State of the Union address and the Republican Party response. Coverage begins at 8. This week, as part of their regular conversation about politics, Roby Brock from Our Partner Talk Business and Politics and John Brummett, a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette, discuss the stakes for the president with tonight's national address. Uh, it's, it's, I think, the most extraordinary set of circumstances for a State of the Union that I've seen maybe maybe COVID and maybe yeah I think so uh, this is this is a this is an, a full international crisis he 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 speaks to a to a captive prime time American indeed uh, global audience uh, and and he needs to address it and put it in perspective and show strength and show a plan and show hope. Hard to do. Uh, then he speaks when his approval rating is has been sinking. He he, he speaks when uh, the economy is is not good. He has advisors saying you need to get out there and tell people the economy is not as bad as they say it is, uh, and that we've accomplished some things, which would put him in the position of telling people. I know inflation is killing you. The gas prices are out of control. You, uh, the, the shipping logjam is a problem, uh, and, and I, I know. And, and the workforce stoppage, workforce issues, are, are having difficulty in keeping your businesses staffed up. But you know, 
uh, get over it. Things are fine. I'm doing good. And here's what I've done. I don't think that would work. I don't know exactly how he pulls off that delicate balance of, of sensitivity to real world economics and gets outside the bubble while also putting it in, put it in perspective in terms of some of his, uh, what he sees as his accomplishments. So I don't, I, I expect, <clears throat> I've just told the paper, I'd like to write a live column tomorrow night on this speech. I've never done that on the State of the Union because I think this one could be telling. It could have some significance. State of the Unions are usually just uh, just partisan contrivance and silly pageantry with the one side standing up and the other not standing up and the applause lines and it's all and it's a partisan showcase and it'll be some of that but but, but the stakes are a little different and uh, the and and the dynamic is a little more uh, interesting indeed crucial John Brummett is a political columnist for the Arkansas Democrat Gazette and his work can be found at arkansasonline.com he and Roby Brock Roby from our partner Talk Business and Politics discussed President Biden, former President Trump, and Arkansas Senator Tom Cotton at length as part of this week's discussion. And you can find the entire conversation at talkbusiness.net. Tonight's State of the Union address from President Biden and the Republican Party response can be heard live on KUAF beginning at 8. This is Ozarks at Large. As the push for students to develop STEM-related skills has grown over the past decade, groups like the Community School of the Arts making sure that Arkansas students can be competitive in the arts as well as the sciences. The school recently received a $750,000 grant from the Maybe Foundation to construct the Center for the Creative Arts in Fort Smith. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with founder and executive director Dr. Rosalie Russell about the center, which will provide students with cutting-edge technology for several different arts areas and what the new center will mean for the future of creative students. So in uh, 2016, I left the university and we formed a community school of the arts uh, in the fall of 16. And again, it was an after-school preparatory program in music, theater, dance, visual art with uh, really advanced type of teachers. And as we've been moving forward, I knew we wanted to build a facility uh, where students could come from all over uh, various uh, school districts and regions. And so we started uh, fundraising, and believe it or not, uh, from about... uh, I believe it's a two, about 2018. It's been about two and a half years. 2019, I guess it was. Uh, two and a half years, we've raised $7.5 million to build this center um, where students can come. And we're beginning to add programs that are very specialized programs for high school students where they will be bused there for half of their school day and receive credits at their high school. And that was a vision I've had for years because it's a version of the uh, 1980s governor schools where students did that and they were bust and uh, governors in various states were supporting that and funding that. And so we're following now a model that would be like some of these technical uh, programs where students are bused to a technical institute for half of their day and they get high school credit. So we knew that going into this, we it's entirely focused on the arts and that there's not a program like this in our state where students can be bused for credit for the arts. They can be bused for technical programs, but not for the arts. And so we, uh, we didn't create the model, but we um, uh, are using that model, and we had to have a facility uh, in order to do this because it, it needs to be large enough to uh, bus high school students throughout the day. So uh, basically, we'll have students in this facility throughout the day, and then when the high school students leave at the end of the day, uh, all of our after-school programs will be uh, engaged. And all of this will be provided by what I call real-world teachers, uh, people who maybe have been in theater, maybe have been on stage performing nationally, uh, have directed uh, plays and shows, uh, uh, chefs, 
professional chefs because we're having we're adding programs as we go and um, so we'll have a culinary program we're going to have lots of high-tech digital art uh, film uh, and so we'll have filmmakers come in and teach we'll have professional musicians we're having a recording studio in the facility and so it's that kind of a facility that's very high tech uh very forward thinking so that students when they you know leave this facility first of all children can just come and enjoy the arts um you know for their own pleasure or they may be thinking about going off to college in the arts high school students will be prepared to go to college uh, to get an arts degree they'll be prepared to go into the world whether it be corporate or in an arts uh, uh, form, and so we're we're really forward thinking so that we don't leave students graduating from high school or going on to college and then not able to get a job, which has always been the you know in the past kind of the the uh, stereotypical artist is <laughs> they're they're suffering and looking for a job, and we don't want to do that in this day and age. We're trying to prepare them all either to be in a corporate corporate job or or something uh, in an arts field that that they really you know in a creative field that they can really enjoy i mean and your personal feelings from seeing this project has had a trajectory of i mean at least 10 years how Mm -hmm. does it feel to see the center come to fruition and even having the construction started oh it's exciting uh I, i just can't tell you i mean we created something at the university, a group of us, and then have moved that forward to creating a physical facility. Um, for me and just just me personally, it's a it's so rewarding, um, and it's it's just really rewarding to see kids come to these programs and uh, their little personalities and the self esteem, and to see high school kids connecting to what they love to do. It's it's so exciting, and then to get a facility. You know, if you've if you've been in the arts, uh, which I have my entire career, uh, 50 or so years now, literally, and about uh, 30 years ago in college, you um, a lot of times you have to make do with equipment, facilities that are maybe adequate if you're lucky. And um, we want to create something that's just a center of excellence in facilities, in equipment, the latest technology, uh, the acoustics that are right. So for me, that I, I couldn't be more excited and just uh, it's just such a reward to see that happening because it's it's so hard to get facilities that are are really great for for the for the arts. What other demographics can enjoy the Center for Creative Arts, and how can they benefit? Well, there well there are adults who are of course going to want to take a class or two. I, I keep hearing that the adults want to take culinary. I personally need to take the culinary <laughs> classes. Uh, but uh, So we will have adults, but I'll tell you, uh, the, the teaching primarily is focused on children and youth. Adults can take classes for their own enjoyment, not, not a problem at all. We do have adults. What the adults in our community are going to enjoy is the fact that we have concerts, shows, uh, art exhibits, uh, festivals, uh, partnering activities with uh, other organizations in the community, including the Marshalls Museum. We'll do a lot of things there. Building some uh, uh, activities in the summer on the riverfront. We'll have that opportunity to do that. And then our partnerships with the schools. We literally reach 39 school districts that are within an hour range of Fort Smith in Arkansas and in Oklahoma. Yes. And so you're talking thousands of students and families that will get to come, students to come participate in the programs and families that get to come enjoy concert shows. It's really going to uh, be sort of an explosion of activities on the riverfront with the shows, the, you know, come to the show, come have a have a, a dessert from our culinary students, uh, come see a film, those kinds of things, reenactments that we can do for with the Marshalls Museum, um, just all kinds of things that happen in larger cities where there's a riverfront and where we have, uh, where we're on the border of uh, two states and the, that we can involve students and uh, school districts from both of those states. It's that, that's really where, 
we're going to reach a lot of people or through those districts and families. I mean, and the center, as I'm looking at the different areas, it's so diverse. I mean, culinary, film, how many programs mm-hmm. is the is CSA choosing to include and why? There are six actual major areas, um, film, uh, visual art, and, and very high-tech visual art rather than that there will be the traditional foundations of art, and then we'll move toward the tech areas so that students, for example, can, let's say a company like Apple, wants to hire a, a student in, in art, they can now get a, a, a job in a creative field in the corporate world. Um, and so we're trying to move in directions that where, school, where we don't overlap with schools and so we can complement the school district and they'll you know, really want to send students and students will really want to come. So we'll have culinary, film, uh, digital art, visual art, digital art, um, dance, music, and then musical theater. Ozarks at Large's Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke with Dr. Rosalie Russell from the Community School of the Arts over Zoom. The school is hosting a celebration to commemorate the start of the construction of the new Center of the Creative Arts and the recently awarded grant on March 13th from 2 until 4 in the afternoon at Riverside Pavilion in Fort Smith. To learn more about the school, you can go to csafortsmith.org. I'm Peter O'Dowd. President Biden delivers his first State of the Union address this week, and he does so with a war raging in Europe, inflation at a 40-year high, a pandemic stretching into its third year, the president's message to the country, and the latest from the ground in Ukraine. That's next time on Here and Now. Here and Now begins shortly on KUAF at 1 o'clock. And don't forget, you can always listen to KUAF by just asking your smart speaker to please play. KUAF. Thanks for being with us. This is a Tuesday edition of Ozarks at Large. Researchers are preparing to launch a multi-year study across the southeastern United States to help better predict destructive tornadoes. The study, known as PERILS, is being led by scientists from the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. It will examine a specific type of storm that often gives rise to tornadoes with very little chance to notify the public. NOAA researcher Anthony Liza says they plan to study how the unique geography of the southeastern United States affects the development of tornadoes. At any given location, as a line of potentially tornadic thunderstorms approaches, how is the environment changing within about six to eight hours uh, upon the, the approach of that line? And then when the line of storms gets there, how does the environment immediately out ahead of it change from one part of the line to another? And can that tell us something about the potential for a given part of that line of storms uh, to have the potential produce tornadoes versus another part that might not. Liza says despite the region being home to the most deadly tornadoes, the southeastern United States has generally not been studied when it comes to severe tornadoes. University of Oklahoma meteorology professor Mike Biggerstaff says the goal is to better understand a specific type of storm known as quasi-linear convective systems to be able to give the public more warning before tornadoes occur. We want to take our research operations and actually come up with ways that the operational network can detect these circulations with a broader brush view than what we're able to achieve with the research radar. So we're going to, we're going to do the research to operations part of this as well and eventually improve the ability to warn for those smaller, short-lived, but deadly tornadic storms. The study will cover a large swath of the southeastern United States from Missouri and Arkansas to the Gulf Coast. The three-year program is funded by $9 million from NOAA and the National Science Foundation. The study will span two separate spring storm seasons, with the first beginning today. Ozarks at Large is underwritten, in part, by the Walton Family Charitable Support Foundation. Today is the 50th anniversary of the Buffalo River's national designation, and the Shiloh Museum of Ozark History is observing this milestone throughout the year with Ken Smith's Buffalo River Country, a photo exhibit celebrating the river and those who advocated for its preservation. More information is available at 750-8165 or shilohmuseum.org. Theater Squared presents Tiger Style. This new comedy tackles the successes and failures of tiger parenting as Albert and Jennifer Chen reached academic achievement but just can't conquer adulthood. Tiger Style is on stage and streaming through April 3rd, 777-7477 or theater2.org.
for tickets and information. This is Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellens. With me is our Milton Grammarian, Catherine Charles. Welcome back. Thank you. Kyle, I guess we should declare this month Idiom Month. Oh, we got more idioms? Because I All have right. even more to talk about. <clears throat> and we've been talking about the origins right. of idioms. Right. And idioms are? A turn of phrase that means something, but really on the surface you wouldn't know what Right. And they're means. not literal. Yeah, usually. Although their meaning sometimes. Right. Their origins they came can from be. literal. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, uh, you won't be accused of beating around the bush. Oh, I mean, not getting to the point. Right. It dates, it dates to the 1400s hmm. when wealthy hunters hired men to literally beat the bushes to draw out birds. Sounds like the precursor to one of those stocked hunting ranches so popular yeah. today. That history doesn't give me a clear path to how the phrase came to me and avoid getting to the point. But I guess there's an irony there. Well, I guess. And we've had 700 years to <laughs> have it <laughs> to, evolve. To, yeah, yeah. It evolve, yeah. But going from, you know, scaring birds to uh, not getting yeah. the point. I don't know. Yeah. Most of the idioms we're talking about show a definite link to their history. For instance, what does it mean to jump on the bandwagon? Oh, it's a popular notion and everyone's doing it, so I'm going to... Come along. Right. In early American election rallies, politicians often used a horse-drawn wagon the way campaign buses are used today. Sure. The wagon would often feature a band. And those who wanted to show their support for the candidate or maybe just wanted to hear the music climbed on it. That's incredibly literal. Yeah, Yeah. it is. Kyle, I bet you know a lot of big wigs. Important people. Mm Mm-hmm. The term was first used in the 1700s sure. when wigs were all the rage. The most important members of society wore the biggest wigs. Yeah. <laughs> all right, two Literal. for two that just yeah. make complete sense. Kyle, if you're backstage before a performance and you want to wish a good experience for an actor, what do you say? Break a leg. Yes. You never say good luck. No. That's supposed to be bad luck in theater. Right. I once performed a vaudeville-themed gridiron skit, including a soft shoe and two other dancers. And it ended up with one of those bits where the actor keeps coming back on stage for more applause mm-hmm. and is pulled off on ceremony. Well, yeah. we didn't use okay. the hook. Except I was the person who kept coming back, of course. You knew that. <laughs> and the other dancer who was supposed to pull me off Put a little too much force mm. into it and threw me off the side of the stage into a stairwell. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> I wouldn't hurt at all, but it gave me a new understanding of break a leg. Oh, my gosh. That's scary. <laughs> Though the supersti- superstition still stands, perhaps the idiom derived from one of the more than 50 definitions of break, oh. which also means to make a strenuous effort. I don't think I've ever heard it used that way. I haven't either. Hmm. And, and also, you don't say Macbeth backstage or in a theater, right? Oh, I didn't know that. You call one. it the Scottish play. Oh, no, I didn't know there, that. There's one. some sort of superstition. Actors out there listening, you can fill me in on this, but you never say, if you're in a theater, you never say the word Macbeth. Hmm. Unless, of course, you're, you're in Lady Macbeth. Yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> although she may never. Although maybe him. backstage, she just says, hey, you. I'll tell you the new version with Denzel Washington uh-huh. and Francis McDormand uh-huh. on Apple Plus. Uh-huh. So good. Oh, uh, yeah, I've got that on it's my list. It's beautiful. Yeah. I think it still costs something to see it now because it's probably going to be If you subscribe to Apple Plus. I do. You got it. Okay. I'll look at it. All right. Suggest a movie to you. Sure. Shiva Baby. I have not heard of this. Oh, you should see it. It's it's on Hulu, I believe. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's, It's one of those things like My Dinner with Andre. Right. Where all of the action is in one house, okay. the entire movie, but it's, it, it's okay. you like it. All right. <clears throat> I'm going to put that down. Kyle, I hope that looking into your retirement many years from now, you have created a nice little nest egg. Money, yeah. uh, security. Savings. Yeah. Savings, mm-hmm. right. This is thought to originate from the pa- practice of placing fake eggs in hen's nests to encourage them to lay more eggs. Hmm. meaning more income for the farmer. Now, why it would do that, I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say. And for sure, money and good investments does create more money for your nest egg. Hmm. So, you know, more money makes more money, yeah. 
But where to invest? Lots of people are on the fence about that. Undecided. Mm-hmm. And it's very literal. Since the 1820s, the term invokes a literal image of a person standing, straddling a fence, unable <laughs> to decide to jump off to the left or the right. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know how often that came up, but well. <laughs> <laughs> people sit around on fences a lot and Maybe, not know I mean, which way to go. <laughs> Didn't have social media then. Maybe that's how you pass <laughs> right. your time. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and one thing you have to decide is whether to invest or spend your pin money. What's pin money? Pin money? P-I-N. I have never heard You've this. You've never heard it. Pin money? Pin, P-I-N. No. It's a small sum of money for spending on inessentials. Oh, like mad money, maybe. Yeah, like okay. mad money. Mm-hmm. I've never heard it called pin huh. money. P-I-N. P-I-N. Hmm. As a bowler in my youth, I probably would have guessed that pin money was bet on strikes and spares. But the origin is much more domestic than tin pen. Historically, an allowance was given to a wife for, quote, private expenditure. When women of the era wanted to add to their allowance, they would sew and sell or sell eggs. The extra money they made was pinned to the front of their aprons. Oh, my God. This is... (laughs) Everything about that is horrible. (laughs) You should be proud that you never knew it. Yeah. (laughs) A million years ago, I worked for Mike Galden when he was head of university relations. I loved my job because he shared an appreciation for weird wordplay. Mm. I once wrote a feature story about the Agri School's research on young hens. Mm -hmm. My lead was, the proof is in the pullet. As opposed to proof (laughs) in the pudding. That's good. That's good stuff there. Um, And what is proof is in the pudding? We have information or examples, precedent, that, that shows... That this is right? Mm-mm. It's success measured by results. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the American version of a British saying, the proof of the pudding is in the eating. And you may you may have heard that along around the way. <laughs> Meaning <laughs> success is in the taste of the, uh, of the dish, not the appearance. I got you. You didn't know that. Huh? No. <laughs> okay. If you spill the beans, what have you done? You've let... Well, you've left the cat out of the bag. You've told a secret. That's right. You <laughs> yes. left the cat out of the bag. Attributed to an ancient Greek voting process of placing beans in a container. If the container was spilled, yeah. the results would be prematurely revealed. There's some sort of joke about the big lie there, but I, I don't know what it is. I haven't found it. We'll move on. Kyle, people often describe my daddy's tendency to get emotional by saying he would cry at the drop of a hat. Just like that. Mm-hmm. My husband, David, once told me that he was a lot like my daddy, except that he never let people drop the hat. <laughs> <laughs> the idiom comes from the 1800s when it was common to signal the beginning of a race or fight by dropping a hat. Oh, so before Kinda a starter like, pistol. Yeah, or, okay. or, or what is it? The In Greece, she takes off her scarf. Right. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or in, uh, you know, drag racing, don't you? A flag? Flag, maybe? yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. These next two idioms, Kyle, I had heard, but I never would have been able to tell you what they mean. Okay. Let's see if you can. Be in your bonnet. Oh, well, if... And I always think of this as a... I guess because of the word bonnet, I always think of this as a she. She has a bee in her bonnet. She will not let go of something. Right, obsessed with something. Yeah. And I had always heard it, but I never would have been able to find it. I didn't yeah, she's know got a bee in her bonnet about yeah. that waiter right. or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. From the 1500s, linking the obsession with a hive of bees buzzing around in your head. And for both of us, Kyle, I now know that our salad days have passed us. Okay, <laughs> salad days. So when Laura, my wife, and I were first together, uh-huh. we would often talk about these are the salad days. Oh. I don't think we knew that it specifically referred to youth. Uh-huh. I think we just meant everything is Lovely. great. Lovely, yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I have since learned it does specifically refer to Mm. the younger days, right? And the origin really does. Um, Though first used by Shakespeare in the early 1600s, referring to Cleopatra's salad days, when she was, quote, green in judgment and cold in blood, the phrase didn't catch on until the 1800s. 
200 years later. Then it was used to liken youth to the short-lived nature of salad greens. Huh. Makes a lot yes. of sense there, doesn't it? It does. Well, I guess it's time for me to stop talking or to do what people did in the late 1800s to control the volume of their gramophones <laughs> by stuffing something into the horns. It's time for me to put a sock in it. Catherine Sherls is our militant grammarian. <laughs> Days are bound to go, people hustle to fill the floor. Youth is leaving by the door, this doesn't teach you. Move along, you've got to live. Fingers curl, touching his, running off at the mouth. Scarlet lips, it's all. Late when I bounce my ball The harder it is to see The longer it takes to leave Salad days are bound to go People hustle to fill the floor Youth is bleeding by the dog This doesn't teach you The song Salad Days from the European band the Swing Ninjas. This is Ozarks at Large. Tomorrow on our show, History of the Women's Project in Arkansas opens Thursday. The Women's Project was doing things when nobody else was talking about them. In the 80s, the government was slashing social services and incarcerating more and more people. The HIV epidemic was exploding and violence against women was more intense than ever. Plus, an excerpt from the most recent live recording of the Undisciplined podcast that took place last week at St. James Baptist Church in Fayetteville, and a conversation with the producers of the new film, In a Different Key, about autism, that will have a screening in Northwest Arkansas this weekend, months before its national broadcast premiere. All of that and more tomorrow at noon and 7 on KUAF. And you can always listen to our show by asking your smart speaker to please play Ozarks at Large. Listen up, teachers. The spring semester is back in session. And if your students have something to say, NPR wants to hear it. It's time again for the Student Podcast Challenge. Podcasts can be anything from a class project to students' perspectives on an event in the school or community. The contest is for middle and high school students, and it's open now through March 21st. All students need is the help of a teacher like you. For details, rules, and past contest winners, go to studentpodcastchallenge.npr.org. This is 91.3 KUAF. Fayetteville, Fort Smith, Bentonville, and Jane, Missouri. KUAF is a listener-supported service of the School of Journalism and Strategic Media at the University of Arkansas. You can find us and listen to us anywhere with the free KUAF app. Today's Ozarks at Large was produced by Timothy Dennis inside the Harold and Blanchcock News Studio. Contributors for this first day of March included Rachel Sanchez-Smith and our militant grammarian, Catherine Sherlds. Additional material in today's show came from our colleagues at KUAR, Public Radio for Little Rock and all of Central Arkansas. Our theme is titled The First Hurrah. It is written and performed by Daryl Sean. Coming up next on KUAF This Afternoon, here and now, we'll hear the latest on the Russian invasion of Ukraine, global oil supplies, and more. From the Carver Center for Public Radio in downtown Fayetteville, I'm Kyle Kellums. We'll be back with you tomorrow at noon and 7. Thanks so much for being with us now.